0: Our guest today is Lawrence Cunningham, research professor of law at George Washington University. We'll be discussing his work on quality shareholders, including his articles The Case for Empowering Quality Shareholders, which is forthcoming in the Brigham Young University Law Review, and Ask the Smart Money, Shareholder Votes by a Majority of the Quality Shareholders, which is forthcoming in the UC Davis Law Review. I'll have links to both papers in the show notes for the episode. Larry, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Larry, you lead the Quality Shareholders Initiative at GW Law. So I wonder if we could start there. What are quality shareholders? Uh, Who are they? How are they different from other shareholder cohorts? Are they uh, low-quality shareholders in these other cohorts? Are they something different? And how do quality shareholders come up in academic scholarship and corporate investor relations?
1: Quality shareholders are stock pickers who hold for the long term. So it's the buy and hold stock picker crowd. They contrast with indexers, which are unfocused. They buy the entire market without discriminating, and they do hold for the long term. And also distinguished are transient or short-term holders who may hold a focused position, but never for long. Uh, some examples of the quality cohort, that these long-term focused shareholders, people may recognize are funds such as T Rowe Price, Wellington, Capital World, Newberger Berman. Uh, and again, as a contrast, the the large indexers today are the three big ones: Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street. And then transients, the short-term sort of churn operations. Uh, a firm like Numeric, and other firms that are doing nano trading or very short-term rapid change. And I should say each of these cohorts contribute something very important to capital markets and to the investment community. The short-term traders do make a market, facilitate liquidity and are available when people need to sell. And indexers contribute enormous value by providing effectively the market return to millions of ordinary Americans ordinary people around the world. So they add a lot of value. The quality shareholders add a distinctive sort of value by focusing very carefully on individual businesses rather than the scattershot approach and then being patient as managers navigate their strategies. In terms of the academic provenance of these ideas, I identify the origin really to, at least in the contemporary setting, to Brian Bushy, professor of accounting at University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School who about 20 years ago began an empirical classification of shareholders pretty much along these lines. His labels were a little different. He called the indexer cohort the quasi-indexers because he meant to include both the large firms who say that they buy the entire index and also lots of other firms that pretend to be stock pickers but actually deliver the index. And his second category where he called them transients, and these are shareholders whose duration is short, whose average holding period is months or so rather than long-term. And the category I call quality shareholders, Professor Bushy called dedicated shareholders. That's just a nomenclature shift. The difference, the reason I I inserted the word quality instead of dedicated is because the other source of my research is ultimately Warren Buffett, chairman and CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, who back in the 70s, as he was beginning that company, set as a goal attracting only quality shareholders. He called them that. He wanted long-term focused investors, not transients, not indexers. And he's largely succeeded that Berkshire Hathaway has a greater density of quality shareholders than any other company or any other cohort. And more recently in the academic research, I like to credit Martin Kremers at Notre Dame, formerly of Yale, and, and now the dean at Notre Dame Business School, who's, who's written a lot in both the finance literature and in legal scholarship. Listeners will probably recognize him as the inventor of a concept called active share, which simply looks at very simple calculation of the proportion of a fund that is different from the index, and so his idea was to sort out which funds are simply buying the index, and even if they say they're doing something else. And his ranking, very simple math, really helps to illuminate which funds are clearly indexing, or quasi-indexing, to use Professor Bushy's label, or more on the quality shareholder end, to use my nomenclature. So it's quality shareholders, long-term buy-and-hold stock pickers, a very old-fashioned cohort, and with a you know very deep pedigree, I'd say, in the academic literature.
0: The idea of quality shareholders, whether we call them quality shareholders or something else, has an academic pedigree. These articles that we're talking about today really focus on corporate governance implications for quality shareholders. So I'd like to focus and maybe turn our attention there, specifically when it comes to shareholder voting, that majority of minority votes have long been used to cleanse potentially conflicted corporate transactions. If A majority of the minority of shareholders approves a transaction courts are likely to defer to that vote. What's the basis for that practice? And what problems do you identify in how and why majority of minority votes sometimes fall short of that ideal function?
1: I think the Motivation for the majority of the minority was to, as you say, help sanitize a transaction, especially interested transactions, that is corporate mergers or take private transactions where some existing shareholder cohort may have a different uh, set of incentives than the rest of the shareholders. And so the idea was law and courts and boards are really supposed to be looking out for those other shareholders to try to assure that they get a a fair shake. And the idea was, gosh, it's useful to use the directors, independent directors, and have judicial review. But gosh, uh, since the goal is to protect those other shareholders, why don't we just ask them? Let's just have an additional filter or screen, if if you like, uh, a vote of a majority of that cohort, the non-interested group. And if they approve it, why we don't need to worry so much about whether a board thought it was a good idea, whether the board was independent, or whether a judge is is capable of making a review of of the transaction. So it's very sort of logical jurisprudential or even business innovation that said, let's submit the interested transaction to the disinterested holders. And so it's a quite logical and and appealing idea. I guess the limitations include uh, that... Not not all of this cohort have the long-term view. Not all of this cohort are even informed about the particulars of a transaction or a a company that's involved in one. Just to take the categories of shareholders that we just reviewed, indexers buy thousands of stocks, and it's almost impossible to expect for them to be fully informed about each of those businesses or the particular transactions that might be proposed. And so to have a vote of that cohort may not be as meaningful as the logic of the majority of the minority vote might suggest. Likewise, if a significant part of the base are transient shareholders, short-term holders, arbitrageurs, nanosecond traders, and so on there... The signal they send in voting may not be as robust as you'd like to see in deciding how much weight give to such a part of the decision-making process. The majority of the minority remains a useful tool in governance, in structuring and improving transactions, and a useful way for judges to decide how much deference they ought to give or how much review they ought to impose. But there are significant drawbacks to it as well.
0: So majority of minority votes have a lot to offer, but they're not a panacea to all issues perhaps related to conflicted or interested transactions. And you give an example of this in one of your papers, the example of the Dell Take Private deal from a few years ago. Could you walk us through that case study a little bit and point out in dollars and cents terms how Uh, some of the issues that you talk about with majority of minority voting and the role of indexers and transient shareholders might not get all the way to solving the problem of an interested transaction or a conflicted transaction.
1: Yeah, the Dell take private transaction is an exquisite illustration of the problem and also of the appeal of my proposed solution. The transaction took place uh, about 2013. Michael Dell, controlling shareholder of the public company, proposed a cash out merger at about $14 per share, a little less than that. And later valuations or appraisals showed that the stock was in fact worth nearly 18. So he's trying to get the whole company on the cheap and uh, they follow the textbook practice of having an independent board committee review the transaction, engage their own valuation experts and so on and included in the agreement a condition that the transaction would only go forward if it were approved by a majority of non-Michael Dell shares, majority of the minority. Given the stakes, a a huge fight broke out, one of the most uh, intense and bitter corporate battles of our era, and you had every different sort of shareholder playing a role. We had a couple of what I call quality shareholders, long-term focused shareholders, including a T. Rowe price and and Southeastern Asset Management. And then there were lots of short-term speculators involved, betting essentially whether the deal would go through or not, along with a, this is a major public company at the time, so you had a lot of passive index funds who owned significant stakes, although how much attention to the detail they were paying is far from clear. But the vote squeaked by. The majority of the minority vote prevailed by just around 51%. The deal went through, and then it was all very clear pretty soon that uh, they had left $4 a share on the table, which amounted to many billions of dollars. And so I think that's a a good illustration of a transaction where the majority of the minority was not a useful device. And I think it was in part because there were a lot of indexers who may simply have rubber-stamped the transaction without really studying it carefully simply deferring to the board's recommendation, and a lot of transients that were in it for the arbitrage. as They bought the stock speculating that the deal would go through, and it helped for them to vote yes, even if it left other longer-term shareholders with a lower valuation. And so it is, I think, a good illustration where it's a nice idea to have a majority of the minority as they, they did in that case, but it might have been a better one to say, what does the long-term focused cohort think?" just to have a separate vote of them without the inductors without the transients just get their view and i think that vote if you had a majority of only that cohort i'll bet the deal would have been voted down
0: this idea of looking to a vote of majority of the the quality shareholders is the proposal that you put forward and i wondered if you could maybe introduce that a little bit how it would work first of all how are we going to define quality of shareholders? How would companies go about deciding who fits into that cohort and who doesn't? And then how would the idea of voting by a majority of quality shareholders fit into existing structures that we have? We have independent directors, we have perhaps uh, special committees or independent committees, and we have majority minority voting. How would that fit into that? And what effects do you think that majority of quality shareholder voting might have that would be beneficial to some of these issues or that would be salutary to some of these issues?
1: The proposal is a voluntary mechanism that a board on a particular set of facts decide is desirable as a condition to going forward with a a particular proposal, whether it's a take private transaction, a cash out merger, or or potentially any other kind of vote where it's useful to get the shareholder's view. And so it would be entirely optional up to a board of directors. I don't propose any statutory amendments or even judicial requirements or or commands in, in this, but that some boards might decide even take the going private deal with Michael Dell. That board, if it was really trying to do a good job and not simply rubber stamping whatever Michael wanted to do, they might have decided, look, in addition to the majority of the minority, let us have a separate vote of the quality and see what they think. And so the board would simply draft a clause, insert it in the contract. And yes, we need to define the concept of quality shareholders, which holders are eligible to vote on this special ballot. And here... again, it would be up to the board exercising its business judgment about how to think about the shareholder base. But an obvious resource would be the academic literature to which we've referred. So we could you know use Brian Bushy's classification scheme. We could use could supplement the active share concept that Martin Kremers has contributed. We at the Quality Shareholders Initiative that you referenced have developed a framework for delineating the categories of indexer, transient, and quality. There are a number of proprietary boutique consultancy firms that have generated very simple but elegant models in delineating these cohorts. So there's a a variety of objective, independent resources a board could draw upon to delineate which shareholders are eligible to vote. But the key ideas, again, would be that these are shareholders who have held the stock for a long time, more than a year, more than two years, and have a concentrated portfolio. So it has a high active share under the Martin Kramer's definition. Firms like Wellington or T. Rowe Price would be eligible. Uh, most of the funds run by firms like Vanguard, and BlackRock, and State Street would not They'd be entitled to vote on the regular shareholder vote required by statute or contract, majority of the minority, and so on. So this would be additive, it would be an additional optional test, if you like, so that to answer that part of your question, everything about the existing process would stay the same whatever statutory shareholder approvals or contractual approvals or or market-based approvals or judicially incentivized approvals, all that would stay in place. But a board might decide, let's include an additional condition as a separate vote of this cohort and see what they think. And I think that, again, it would improve the outcomes in a non-trivial number of cases, I'd say.
0: To get in the weeds a little bit, are there any technical or administrative barriers to a majority of quality shareholder vote happening? Are there things that companies would need to overcome or their service providers, their proxy services would need to overcome to get this set up?
1: There are. The two fiendish elements are these definitions about uh, longevity, the time horizon, on the one hand, and the concentration level on the other. We'd have to have a mechanism through which they, first of all, to define these terms for the particular vote, and then we'd need a the secretary of the company to have a basis for inspecting the eligibility. I think the holding period one would be much easier uh, than if the stock transfer register should indicate the holding periods. And that should be relatively easy to determine or, and verify. There may be some problems with shares held by individuals and street names. And, and so there are potentially administrative challenges, but not that could even on, on that side, I think, be overcome and be, in the scheme of things, relatively low cost compared to the gains. It might be a little more difficult on the concentration side that to insist that the investor indicate what their portfolio concentration looks like. Again, this will be easier for some than others. Funds that have to file public disclosure indicating their relative concentration would simply have to live with whatever the truth is. And again, here we could readily call upon Mark Kramer's research that indicates which investors are with high active share and and which are really passive indexers. So I think that it would be a cost. Writing out the definition in the contract for the board would be not a task and a small cost. Then the back office kind of verification administration, it's non-trivial. Again, I think Or less than the billions of potential savings. And then uh, you'll have disputes, obviously. Some shareholders might want to vote, but they're told that they're not eligible because their holding period is too short or their concentration level is too low. And so you might have some additional litigation costs or administrative costs. Note that those exist today. Uh, A lot of these problems, when you have a majority of the minority vote, raise issues about is that shareholder Really disinterested? Do, do they have a conflict? Are they, you know, in some way benefiting from this transaction? And aside from the shares that they own, so th- yes, there are administrative costs in the weeds, uh, you know, technical issues, as you say, but they're not wildly worse than you know, majority of the minority vote. I think they are administratable. One thing I worried a little bit about was gamesmanship. Some shareholders would, in good faith, say, "Look, I've got a concentrated position in this stock. You know, I only own one hundred others, but I pay very close attention to this one. We have platoons of analysts, and and we interview the management. We really understand this company, so we ought to be eligible. We've held it for fourteen months, and and that's a long time in corporate America. So you have a good faith basis that, uh, you know, close case that concerns me. But I think it's solvable. The real concern is the fraudster, the one." Tries to game things by creating multiple different funds through which it has a fund owns an index, let's say, but has a separate fund own the stock of each of, say, a thousand different companies owned by a thousand different funds and therefore claims to be eligible as a quality stockholder in each one of those. I think that kind of subterfuge would not work here because the attendant litigation and judicial focus would deter that kind of behavior. It kept me up for a while, but I think that. The kinds of transactions that would warrant this innovation are the kinds that often attract litigation anyway, and that it would be very easy for someone to challenge any kind of deception or subterfuge such as that in relatively short order in an existing litigation forum. So yeah, I think on balance, it would be fun to to actually take a case like Dell's. What would the cost have been? What would the incremental litigation fighting about, is Tiro really quality in that case? Is Southeastern really quality in that case? Is another shareholder better suited to make the kind of judgment? But I think that kind of wrangling, it's almost inevitable in any kind of American corporate setting.
0: I'd like to talk about your proposal in the context of the corporate political economy. There are a number of actors, institutional actors, who seem like they would be either in favor or perhaps opposed to a majority of quality voting provision institutional investors, the transient investors, the indexers, directors, management courts, the quality shareholders themselves, and I'm sure there are others. How might some of these institutional actors react to majority of quality voting provision? And with those reactions in mind, do you think it's feasible that companies might go forward and start doing this type of voting, notwithstanding any potential pushback they might get?
1: Excellent question, Andrew. Thank you. I'd say the answer will vary with the company and transaction type and vary across those types of actors that you mentioned. But at a broad level, I'd say many directors of companies would find this device quite appealing. For one thing, it recognizes the importance of Long term focused shareholders. And you hear every day in corporate America, that's something directors would like to see more of. You hear lots of complaints about uh, short termism, about shareholders who are just dropping in and moving on and pressuring companies for quarterly results. And on the other end, you hear uh, frustration about indexers that simply have a check the box approach to corporate governance or voting. And so I, there are a, a large number of directors in corporate America for whom appealing to the long-term focused shareholder is attractive. And, and they do it. I've written extensively about some of the strategies that such directors have deployed to attract long-term focused shareholders, and that includes communication strategies, not having quarterly earnings calls, for example, not having quarterly targets, trying only to speak at annual meetings and through annual shareholder letters, having high director ownership in the stock and other signals that it is a place that welcomes long-term focused shareholders. So I think some boards of some companies who have that orientation would find this device very attractive. Now, there are directors at the other end of that spectrum, too, who themselves don't care about the long term or don't care who the shareholders are. and For them, the idea of a majority of the quality vote would, would not be appealing. But I think uh, overall, uh, there are plenty of directors who would. Among the shareholder cohort, I think you're right that quality shareholders, I think, would love this. I, I know many of them and conducted a lot of interviews and, and surveys, and, and they welcome. Outreach from companies that validates their views and um, shows that they are being cultivated and wooed. And uh, a device like this would be one of the strongest possible signals. And they've got no problem voting on the merits of important decisions like this, voting yes or no. They're not, even though quality shareholders may sound like they're loyalists and friends of companies and have some personal affection for incumbent managers and so on. They're not sycophants. They're not patsies. If they don't think a transaction is economically appealing to the shareholders, uh, they'll vote no, as so many of them did in the Dell case. So I think the quality shareholder court overall would certainly be have an appetite for this. The indexers and transients at first might not, look, they might say, hey, why don't we get the vote? This is wrong to deprive of us a say on this. They'd quickly observe two things. First of all, at least the way I've proposed this, that their vote remains, that there'd still be a vote of the shareholder body under the general corporation law, and then probably a majority of the minority if the board follows that standard convention so they'd still be enfranchised they'd still have their voice and their vote and they might be able to affect the outcome certainly if they wanted to vote no they'd be able to do that so they wouldn't disenfranchise them and second i think you'd say that i think they'd be persuadable to appreciate that the quality cohort almost by definition certainly by supposition long term and focused they are going to make the economically optimal decision, or at least as a group, are, are more likely to than indexers stretched thin or transients who are fleeting. And so I think that they may well come to appreciate that it's even a little bit of the free riding or outsourcing. that The, the indexer, the BlackRock, they don't need to sit down and try to value Dell. They could just ask T. Rowe Price to do it for them. That doesn't mean they'll all like it or all go along with it, but there will be circumstances when a particular company, a particular transaction, will find the proposal congenial to the shareholder community as a whole. Uh, and then for the rest of us, for, you know, say, law professors or, or scholars, I, I think it does add something Useful. A lot of scholars, take Jim Cox, for example, Matteo Gatti or Ann Lipton, are concerned about the extraordinary judicial deference given to majority-minority votes or, or independent boards where they're worried that judges are abdicating their responsibilities or not giving a check that the courts have so long given to these sorts of transactions. And I understand that concern because the existing devices are imperfect. So I think that, I hope, that scholarly view that group of, say, critics would say, yeah, this would help. This would be a positive addition. This would help me. If you've got a vote like this, that would be a useful factor to for a judge to include in deciding how much deference should be given. And and, and even there, there are others who disagree with that criticism of the courts who think they'd like to see fewer judges involved in, in reviewing these kinds of cases. Zohar Goshen comes to mind. And, and I think you, even from that viewpoint that that cohort or that should welcome this additional, let's call it a private mechanism, a contractual device that uh, boards just privately in a particular setting decide to use, promote the fairness or, or integrity of a transaction. So I think the scholarly community should generally find it uh, congenial. People might quarrel about the implementation and the Definitions and technical capabilities. But I think, as a philosophical or conceptual matter, it should appeal. Uh, Judges, finally, to take the fourth cohort there, I I think for similar reasons, should welcome this additional data point that the board would generate or the shareholder body would generate, and it wouldn't be dispositive one way or the other. If the board says it's a condition to our duty to close the transaction, that the majority of the quality vote yes, that would be a no vote would be dispositive. But a yes vote would give a court an additional data point to evaluate the integrity of the transaction or the quality of the boards or the board committee's oversight of of the transaction in the economic terms. And it would certainly be entitled to interrogate the definitions and the accuracy of the calculation or who was eligible and who wasn't, certainly be ripe topics for judicial consideration or review. But having done that, having considered the merits of the process, I think many judges would welcome uh, that additional data point. Again, they could decide that it's worth a lot or a little in in a given case, but I can't imagine a judge saying you're not allowed to do that, or that's not admissible evidence in in my courtroom. So I think overall, it's designed uh, (laughs) uh, to minimize opposition. And I think to your final question there, Andrew, all it would take is one law firm. If Wachtell would just advise one company to do this, VATH would advise one company to do this and test it and see if it helps, then I think it would be self-executed. We don't need a statute or a judicial decision. It would be nice to have a judge say, this is a useful tool, or I'm glad to see this in the contract. But uh, I think in the spirit of private ordering, if, if a law firm or two thought this would help promote the quality of a transaction or the process that the board is going through in evaluating a transaction, then I think by all means, it should be encouraged.
0: What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from these articles?
1: One step back to the beginning and the delineation of shareholder types a common theme in the corporate law scholarship in the past 10 or 15 years has been a observation about the rise of institutional investors. I mean, this really goes back to the 1990s when there was a shift of the demographic of share ownership in the United States. The previous era had been individuals owned most public equity, and a shift occurred in the 90s that institutions owned most corporate equity, and that trend has just continued. And so to what today is a very heavy concentration of institutional ownership. A lot of the scholarship treats that almost says that what you've got now are sophisticated shareholders. They don't need as much judicial support or paternalism. They can handle things for themselves. They know how corporate life works and how deals are proposed or how valuations should be made and so on. And I guess there is there's a lot to that, but the other point I I'd like to add is that the institutional base is neither monolithic nor omniscient. There's a lot of variety of shareholders in that universe. And some of them are wise and savvy, and, and some of them are not, or at least they're not focused on wisdom or astuteness. And, and I think that Brian Bushy's framework, Martin Kremer's framework, that what we try to do at Quality Shareholders Initiative to break down the behaviors of different shareholder cohorts along these lines of average holding period and degrees of active versus passive ownership. It really illuminates the different behaviors and incentives of the shareholders and what we should expect of them as scholars or as judges, as directors, and so on. And so that'd be my most important takeaway, Andrew. Whether we go for majority of the quality or or whether we celebrate the quality cohort in any other particular way, I think for all of us to pay a lot more attention to the bushy (laughs) Kremers kind of models would be my
0: uh, most enthusiastic takeaway from this work. Our guest today has been Lawrence Cunningham, research professor of law at George Washington University. We've discussed his work in quality shareholders, including his articles, The Case for Empowering Quality Shareholders, which is forthcoming in the Brigham Young University Law Review, and Ask the Smart Money, Shareholder Votes by a Majority of the Quality Shareholders, which is forthcoming in the UC Davis Law Review. I'll link to both papers in the show notes for the episode. Larry, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast.
1: Thank you, Andrew, very much, and thanks to all listeners.